0: Welcome, you're listening to Radio Maria, and I have the pleasure of um, introducing Father Ewan Mali. Hello, Father Ewan.
1: Hello, how are you, Tim? Very
0: mm. good. Um, yeah. happy, happy to have you on air, as always, um, mm-hmm. going through scripture. And uh, last week you, I wasn't able to make it because I was a, a little bit ill, um, mm-hmm. but happy to be back. And we're continuing with the Book of Wisdom.
1: We are, yeah. Well, there's 19 chapters, so we've got a few weeks yet. Yeah. <laughs> and something else to talk about. <laughs> so I used to giving a little prayer. I pray usually for wisdom, but today we're doing chapter 13, especially is about transcending the creation to reach the creator. So that's what we pray for in all things that we see and do. Even each other we see, not just something which is created, but something which is a reflection, an image of that creation, an image of the Creator, that we learn to see in each other, something of God. Amen. Amen. So continue with chapter 13. Now that chapter 12, which did last week, was about idolatry, but specifically about the idolatry of the people, the Canaanites who were supplanted by Israel the story of Exodus, and then after Exodus, book of Numbers, and read through to the book of Joshua and Judges. However, as I've been saying quite often, the book of wisdom presupposes you know that story because it tends to refer to this great history in rather elusive terms, not very explicit. You know what he's talking about if you knew the story, but if you didn't know the story, it was quite hard to understand what he's talking about. It's also important to know that really the Book of Wisdom is talking about contemporary peoples and contemporary idolatry. He uses the people of Canaanites as an example of the idolatry, which functions as a justification for Israel taking over that land. It's one of the great questions of why do we have this violence in the Old Testament? In many ways it's become symbolic. It's a is a past which is known by the Old Testament to the writer of the Book of Wisdom but hardly recent history and it's quite possible in fact the writer of the Book of Wisdom didn't live in Palestine he may well have lived anywhere in the Roman Empire almost probably Egypt if it wasn't Israel or Palestine. Chapter 13 though becomes more general it's about idolatry and idolatry as the alternative to belief in God. What you wouldn't really find in the chapter, in the Book of Wisdom, in any of the chapters, is any sense that the alternative to belief in God was simply materialism or unbelief. But the Book of Wisdom, if you don't worship God, you will worship something else. You will be idolatrous. But well, you may not see yourself as idolatrous because the things you see and can take credence from, are the things you think of as your gods. Book of Wisdom doesn't explain, but it's very important when we talk about ancient gods, pagan gods that they are quite unlike the God of Israel, quite unlike the God of Christians, or Muslims, or Jews in the modern age, for certainly liberal Jews. The ancient gods do not create, it's not even clear that they're entirely immortal, they can be killed. Uh, they can suffer wounds and their own life is longer than human life, but it's not res- regarded as something which is eternal, so automatically immortal. Equally, not that we would simply see them as extensions of human beings, not just human beings who live longer and are more powerful, they, they're used in many ways, they're used as images or personifications of the aspects of life. So Aphrodite of course is love but also fertility. You would never understand the an ancient world of love that wasn't about fertility. So the growth of all living things. Aries or Mars in Latin is God of War but he's also the God of conflict and the God who represents in some ways the need to assert justice. They're used in that way. And then there's the Platonists for whom in fact this gods are certainly symbol, but they're symbols of something very elusive, some sense of the beautiful, the good, the true, not as explicit as other pagans, so it's not a god of love as such, or a god of war, or a god of justice, or a god of rule, like Zeus or Jupiter, but rather this platonic images, the platonic elements you might say, goodness, beauty, truth, which himself are regarded as very mysterious, that's the pagan world. Book of Wisdom on the other hand is uh, much blunter. What we should seek is God. What we need is God. So chapter 13 verse 1 says quite bluntly, For all the people who were ignorant of God were foolish by nature. That's a New Revised Standard translation. I would say it might mean all the people who were ignorant of God were futile by nature in vain. Their, their attempts to find truth, happiness, their attempts to flourish, are doomed to fail. It's not as much foolishness as a sort of inability to come to the end of their purposes. So the Greek word, mechaioi, means that. And there are Hebrew terms there, sort of uselessness, it comes from the perhaps trying to do something that you won't be able to do or to start a task you will not be able to finish or make a journey which you will not be able to end. That's what vanity means. So all the people who are ignorant of God, who had no knowledge of God, a sort of unknowingness of God, as he would say, which we say ignorant, were unable from the good things that are seem to know the one who exists nor did they recognize the artisan while paying heed to his works. Now, an earlier question when I've been talking about the Book of Wisdom is to what extent it influences the New Testament. Hard to say. I think the language of the Book of Wisdom, some of the strange and words in his Greek, do occur in the New Testament, but that doesn't mean to say they're quoting from Book of Wisdom. It does suggest there's a common world there what I've just read from the Book of Wisdom is worth comparing with St. Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 1, verses 20 to 23. And I'll read that out and then as we read the rest of chapter 13 of Wisdom, you can make your own mind up about how similar they are, how connected. Paul says, Ever since the creation of the world, His eternal power and divine nature, Invisible though they are being understood and seen through the things he has made. So they are without excuse. Or I might say they, they cannot have a defence. For though they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a mortal human being or birds or four-footed animals or reptiles. So, I think, compare that with the first verse of Wisdom, I think you can already see certain similarities. There is a tendency with Jewish writers to turn to mockery. I think the humour makes them emphasise some of the silliness of worship of idols, particularly the fact that sometimes idol doesn't even look like a human being. It's not a statue of a human being, but it's a bird. An animal or a reptile. But then that goes back to the early type of idolatry where all these different aspects represent something of human life in a different way. The bird represents human beings' desire to, to be higher than themselves, they would say, But all the animals represent different things like strength, speed, or or even beauty. Reptiles well, it's a strange one. Um, in Virgil, the one of the great moments is when Aeneas buries his father and this highly coloured snake appears from nowhere, and this is seen as a good sign. So, well, if you think so, I don't know, personally, I wouldn't find a gigantic snake was a good sign, but uh, perhaps different attitudes then. <laughs> Just describe it as beautiful and highly coloured, and uh, Aeneas is actually a bit astonished at this, rather than delighted, but he certainly doesn't seem to dislike snakes. And of course, one of the images of Rome was the dragon, which, by the way, is why the dragon is the national symbolic animal of Wales because the Wales people, Welsh speaking people, go back to the Batonics who saw themselves as the embodiment of Roman civilization against these pagan Anglo Saxons. So, you know, there are different ways of interpreting it, but Jewish writers just think it's silly, they just think it's absurd that make these images of animals and human beings and then worship them. So back to the book of Wisdom. Um, Get to there. Chapter 13, verse 2. They supposed that either fire or wind or swift air or the circle of the stars or turbulent water or the bright lights of heaven were the gods that ruled the world. And there, I think you might say, Book of Wisdom is a little bit more open to the pagan idea than St. Paul. is fire, wind, swift air, a circling air—the fact that the circles travel in the—sorry, it's the stars travel in a circle. Or even the greatness of the sea, and the skies are at least more plausible gods. But at this point, he's talking about pagan worship, which worships creation they see. Later on he will then say yes but they also create their own idols which is even worse the work of your own hands. Wisdom then goes on, if for delight in the beauty of these things people assume them to be gods, let them know how much better than these is their lord for the offer of beauty created them. the people were amazed at their power and working like they perceived for them how much more powerful is the one who formed them from the greatness and beauty of created things comes a corresponding perception of their creator. That's very similar to Paul. The things that are not seen. We can see other things. There's a difference though. St. Paul's Romans seems to presuppose that the primeval belief was actually in one God. That the people have turned away from that. There's much speculation and commentaries in Paul about why he thinks that and whether that was a widespread belief, but it doesn't seem to be a belief in wisdom. And he doesn't seem to think that we began that way, be, you know, believing in one God and then fell away. And then you'd have to say, well, when would that have been? There is obviously a sort of unity in the first chapters of Genesis before the call of Abraham and the, and the people there have a direct relationship to God of sorts, but then they turn away from it. They refuse to listen to God. They disobey his commandments in various ways. But Paul might be thinking of that, but the book of wisdom doesn't seem to go back to that. It doesn't really assume that there was some fundamental belief in God that had been lost. Rather, it shows how they don't come towards God. They don't build themselves up from seeing created things to the God who made them. I also say myself that believing in God in one way makes the world and creation more beautiful, The another way it makes it less beautiful. It makes it more beautiful in the sense that you can trust in the beauty of the world if you believe it's created. Think of it so some people will say, and I've read people say this, that the beauty of the world is illusory, it's really caused by nature, so flowers aren't beautiful, flowers are just bright things that attract insects and we, therefore, share in the attractiveness of them, which so might say, well, we're not insects. We may also well say that, well, that doesn't stop them being beautiful. It just means that everything is part of a greater whole, it all interconnects. Flowers attract us, we see the beauty in them that sense, believing in God makes us more confident that the beauties of the world are indeed beautiful and not an illusion. we were impressed by mountains, by seas, by rivers, small streams, we were impressed by rainbows, clouds in the sky and the many different colors, that's because God made them. However, it's also true that the beauty of creative things is not satisfying, it's not adequate to our own happiness, we seek something greater. I think that belief in God and very much among those who are called to a life of prayer, particularly those who might say live in a sort of mystical prayer. There's a great longing for a greater beauty which this world cannot give. A beauty this world cannot have. In that sense, the world becomes less beautiful, we seek something else. That's my own opinion, but I think you know there's it's implied in this meditation of the book of wisdom. About creation and how creation should leave us to God. So, I think there's time for a bit of music, perhaps.
0: Yes, indeed. We're going to listen to Indescribable by Chris Tomlin. From the highest of heights, to the depths of the sea, Creation's Colours of all to the fragrance us of-
1: So we move on with chapter thirteen now and I might say that he talks about beauty here. Beauty is important. Um I mentioned that the Platonic idea of the gods they represent these ineffable beauties and goodnesses that we can't quite imagine but long for. Book of wisdom sees beauty in things themselves and it says but from the beauty and greatness and beauty of creative things comes a corresponding perception of the Creator. And the next verse rather contrasts with St. Paul, except we've got another verse, few verses after that, where wisdom seems to be saying two opposite things. So I'll read the, the first part of that now. For from the beauty, greatness, and beauty of created things comes a corresponding perception of the Creator. These people are little to be blamed for perhaps they go astray while seeking God and desiring to find Him. they live among his works they keep searching and they trust in what they see because the things that they're seen are beautiful and that sounds fine that's rather a positive thing paul on the other hand says therefore they are they are without excuse or can't be defended they knew god but did not honor him as god or give thanks to him not really a contradiction because Paul, as I say, seems to think there's a point when people did know God, whereas wisdom is talking people searching for God. Not quite the same thing. He praises them, the Book of Wisdom, that is, for searching. They keep searching. And they trust in what they see because the things that are seen are beautiful. And it's important too, this is a, an idea I think wisdom shares with Plato. Beauty itself is what attracts us in life, what we really seek. Even things that aren't quite the same as beauty, like power and money, pleasures, have a meaning in so much as they are about beauty. But the greatest beauty is the thing we seek to see because that explains everything else. Power, money, pleasures don't explain anything, but beauty explains the meaning of the world. It's a statement about reality. That's why the search for beauty is, at least unconsciously, a search for God, to see what is and why it is, what it's for. And out of this comes joy. And I say, that's the positive aspect the Book of Wisdom says about these pagans. But then he says, yet again, not even they are to be excused, for they had the power to know so much that they could investigate the world How did they fail to find sooner the Lord of these things? So, are they to be praised, or little to be blamed at least, or are they without excuse? Well, I think partly he's thinking of the positive aspect that all around them, the pagans had made great progress in learning about life. They discovered things, they knew things, and as they say, he calls it a power they had the power to know such things. Um, It literally says, if they were so strong that they might know these things. And then there's an important verse, verse, a verb here rather. Um, It says here, investigate the world. But I think the word used to cancel usually means guess about the world. So, or perhaps, Come close, but know that you haven't really reached the reality. so I would think neuro bystander version is a bit stronger than wisdom here. It's about guessing about reality, but good guesses you no know, and informed guesses, educated guesses It say's of course if they're so good, then they should have got to God. so even the criticism contains a certain amount of praise to the acceptance of something to be impressed by. And human beings that they have this power to investigate, this power to discover, to uncover the secrets of the world. But as he said, this should go further. And then the wisdom makes another turn towards the sense that we are having power, we misuse it. And the same way we turn to the idea of idolatry of things which are created. Remember the chapter 13 begins with the idolatry of the things which human beings haven't made but are impressed by. But I've also examined, understood, they they examine the stars, they become very good at predicting things like eclipses. They sometimes linked the nature of the skies to the weather or forthcoming weather. So clever, but that cleverness can be a trap because it makes you think When yourself is clever, and after a while it's not the things that you're cleverly discovering, but rather the fact that you're clever, which becomes important. Self-worship, self-wonderment. So he goes on, but miserable if their hopes set in dead things are those who give the name gods to the work of human hands, gold and silver, fashioned with skill, like the of animals, or a useless stone, or the work of an ancient hand. Ah. And there he's looking back at the fact that some of these things at least are old. And, you know, old things always seem more impressive because they're old. We're we're always impressed by ancient things. But the point is that there are work of human hands. So it's a more more dangerous kind of idolatry. And it's also one that you can feel, or the Book of Wisdom can certainly feel, more contempt for. You know, you you can understand worshipping sun the moon and the stars these are mighty objects and beautiful objects but you know things you make for yourself And the rest of the chapter really um, becomes an analysis of that. I say there is this tendency to humor and mockery so not always fair but mockery itself can sometimes tell you truths which we hide from otherwise. Skill woodcutter may saw down a tree easy to handle and skillfully strip off all its bark and then with pleasing workmanship, make a useful vessel that serves life's needs and burn the cast off pieces of his work to prepare his food and eat his fill. And you notice how he's praising skills there, skillfully pleasing workmanship. And also he say, obviously making things is good because we make for good purposes. But then the cast off piece, The piece is not used. Useful for nothing. A stick crooked and full of knots. He takes this and he carves it with care and his leisure and shapes it with skill gained in idleness. He forms it in the likeness of a human being, some worthless animal, giving a coat of red paint, covering its surface red and covering every blemish in it with paint. I notice leisure, idleness. Part of the problem is that, you know, once we could time to play with, we start doing irrational things, that old saying, the devil finds work for idle hands. The red paint is a very specific type of paint often used for idols to make it seem human, but a sort of divine human. The red is a deeper, shinier red than human beings' skins have. He makes a suitable niche for it, it sits in the wall and he fastens it there with iron takes forth to it so we not fall because he knows that it cannot help itself it's only an image and need of help and another part of his point is that clearly no matter how much they venerate this image no matter how much they treated to the god deep down they know it isn't deep down they know that you no know, it's it's not the true god and it's not even a god at all because they have to look after it they carved it they Say fasting with iron. He's referring here to some Old Testament des- depictions of idols. Says well, you might you do fasting with iron because you know it can't even stand up in its own. So it's it's a contradiction. It's the an irrationality, and that irrationality is itself the source of the human being becoming conflicted in themselves. They're looking for something. In a place where they know they can't find it. So the idolatry is not just wrong because it's a mistake, it's wrong because it's a contradictory mistake. It's it's believing something and not believing something at the same time. It's, it's thinking something is true but denying it's true and that's a really profound irrationality that's really destructive. And yet all around you can see this is exactly what people were doing. this this strange sort of double belief. It's worth saying that here, the more learned pagans would have replied that, well, these these images are only means for reaching to the higher things greater things. We don't actually think the images are divine, but we do think that the divine inhabits them. And that too is a sort of rationalisation. Book of Wisdom doesn't seem to be aware of these arguments, so we don't know what its response would be. But in the early Christian age, and then the first few centuries, actually the vine becomes a problem for Christians because the vine starts to sound suspiciously like evil spirits or lesser spirits. So the early Christian would say, well, be spiritual, but you'll reach out to God, the true spirit. Not all the spirits are judged by their obedience or their disobedience to the God that made them. There's only one God. That's a later period that's not quite in the book of wisdom but the book of wisdom is still an inspiration the idea that we reach forward to the world to come so perhaps is it time for some music
0: indeed we shall listen to um how deep the father's love by phillips craig and dean Deep the Father's love for us by Phillips Craig and Dean. You're listening to um, Radio Maria, and uh, Father Hugh and Miley has been taking us through the Book of Wisdom. Father, we've got uh,
1: about ten minutes left over to you. Okay, okay. Oh, well, a bit longer than expected, but anyway. Um, so we finish in uh, with this continuous. His continuation rather of the uh, Book of Wisdom's criticism of idolatry. I just said that there's a sort of contradiction in the belief of those who use idols. So it's interesting, though, he's a bit sympathetic to what the pagan is looking for. And that's the last few verses of chapter 13. When he prays about possessions, I think actually I'd would- Translate as getting things and marriage and children his marriage and children he's not ashamed to address a lifeless thing there i think the book of wisdom is admitting that these images are often embedded in the sense of the personal quest for a good life which is also a married life a life with children so no possessions and his weddings or wedding, he said, weddings so various people marry, and children. He prays and he's not ashamed to speak to this thing which is without a soul or a life of its own. And then, there's a contradiction here, and I'll translate for myself. It's, it's concerning health, he calls on what is weak. Concerning life, he treats as worthy what is dead. And concerning help, he he prays or he petitions that which is hopeless and incapable, incapable, incapable itself, um, unable to do anything. So it's, a, it's a rather odd word. He got lots of odd words in the biblical wisdom. And as regards making a journey, he is calling something which cannot even use its legs, can't even walk. So concerning gaining things, or making things, or things that you can get with your hands. He asks the thing which is most incapable of doing anything with his hands, to do something well. Here in the Greek he's using uh, two different forms of the same word, Uh, an unusual word, but a word that means to do things to do good things, do things well. It gives us the word drama, actually. Greek word drama means doing something by doing something really worthwhile, something impressive. So more than just doing, I mean, it's accomplished. perhaps might be a way of translating it. So he's liberally contrasting the, the, the different contradictions between what the idolatrous seeks And also the fact that he seeks the things which the the idol itself is a, not just nothing to do with this, but actually almost the opposite of what he seeks. You know, you're you're looking for life, so you ask something which is dead. The wood, remember, is a cast off piece of wood. It's, It's already dead because it's been cut down, but it's also itself is just what's left over. That in itself, wouldn't seem to be the most usual practice. There's no reason to think that idols are made of leftover wood, but I think Book of Wisdom just wants to emphasize that stuff that basically is useless, the idolatry wants to make useful. And you see the point of that, you know, let's do something with this wood rather than throw it away, but because what he does is disastrous because in doing it, he tries to make it something more than it is. As I say, falls into a contradiction so all of that is a suggestion that we need to fall away from the things we make or else go beyond them. Is he saying, therefore, that we shouldn't make anything? Well, clearly not. In the fact, next time we come back, I think it'll be in two weeks' time, um, chapter 14, he does actually talk about some of the things we make, particularly the important thing, which is a ship. And I some interest in Christian iconography uh, because the piece of wood that goes through the sea and carries you, which is used by some writers as a symbol of the cross. But that's really stretching the, the meaning of the Book of Wisdom. That's for next time. What we do have here, though, is both a criticism of human life, but also, in a way, praise of human life because he sees all human life is seeking good things, and above all, seeking God. But then he blames them. He says, well, the cleverer you are at seeking out things, the more responsible you are for seeking out the true meaning of all things, which is God. And as such, the Book of Wisdom is both a praise of humanity, but fundamentally a criticism of humanity. The warning of the dangers of humanity, particularly when we're doing well, particularly when we think we have achieved things that we're liable to fall into idolatry. More modern question, is it true that if you fall away from God, you will not become a pure atheist as such, but rather an idolater? Well, I I wouldn't like to make a rule about that, but I think it's often very true in many places that when people turn away from God, they become obsessed with some other thing, some ideology or some system or Some universal rule, perhaps a rule that seems to drive a locomotive train through morality, like existentialism, or the tendency to do to say that you make your own values, or a belief that you can form society so that there are no moral decisions. Everybody is perfectly fitted into a perfect society, which is clearly an illusion, a very dangerous illusion, too, because human beings will always have choice always have to decide for themselves what is good and what is evil but also accept that the decision isn't an act of will it's an act of understanding you must know what is good and evil you must know what the truth is so yeah I think it's true that many alternatives to belief in God have been idolatry but I wouldn't want to go far as to say that there's no such thing as pure atheism just I don't think it's ever very pure I think we do have a tendency to worship and need to have something greater than herself, so it's difficult. And adultery is still a great threat in the modern world, only it's a more disguised idolatry, more an ideological idolatry or a worship of ideas to the extent of making us reject the most obvious moral notions. So I think we can leave it there and uh, come back next time I say chapter 14.
0: Yes, indeed. Um... Thank you so much, Father Ewan. It's been wonderful. Um, we won't see you next week as we will be having the the marathon, Um and okay. uh, that's our big our fundraiser for, for Radio Mirror, which I'm sure our listeners have heard much about, but we will see you the week after that. And we very much look okay, forward to that.
1: Okay, I'll be there. Okay.
0: Thank you so much. Hey, goodbye, then. Goodbye.